Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, and welcome to our next episode of Decoding AQ. With me today, I have Whitney Johnson. She comes to us from Lexington in Virginia. She's the founder and CEO of Disruption Advisors, where she, for the last 10 years, has been doing some amazing work. She's one of the 10 leading business thinkers in the world, named by Thinkers50, and really an expert in just helping leaders grow their people to grow their organizations. So welcome. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here, Ross. So my first question for you uh, today, Whitney, might be a bit random, but it's, uh, so in doing a bit of my internet stalking before, listening to a number of your podcasts, because you're also a host of an amazing podcast uh, yourself, is... You studied music. Do you still play in a jazz band? Do you still do music? And where did that start from music into now being a CEO of Disruption Advisors through a massive journey? But I want to start with your music background. Yes. So I, I, I did, in fact, study music in college. I have a, a Bachelor of Arts in music and I grew up playing piano actually classical piano. And in college, I discovered jazz, which I loved. And I played in the the big band for our university. And we actually got to perform at one point at the Montreux Jazz Festival, which was very exciting. Um, So I, I, the short answer is that I don't do a lot of music now. In fact, I'll talk briefly about that and then talk about how I got where I am. But I um, didn't play piano for many, many years in part because I was focusing on my career in part because it just didn't, it wasn't speaking to me. Um, but I will say over the past few years and probably in part because of the pandemic, I have started playing the piano a bit again and actually started taking some voice lessons and trying to learn how to sing. And so that I can do a little bit of singing and piano. It's very it's not to perform. It's just for me to give me a, a delight and pleasure that I had as a, as a very young child. Um, but yes, that uh, music is an important part of my background and of my life. And I, you went from music then maybe as far left field from music going into banking at Merrill Lynch mm-hmm. and uh, a journey from there. So perhaps pick up um, from yeah. Big band and jazz into the world of work and your career, Whitney. Yes. Well, expediency is, is the, the answer, the exigency of needing to put food on the table. So I had graduated from college and um, had gotten married. My husband and I moved to New York, to Manhattan, and he was getting his PhD in microbiology and had a small stipend, but not much. And so we needed, we needed food on the table. And so I was the person who was designated to make money so that we could buy food. Um, because I was a music major and didn't want to pursue that because I uh, didn't have a lot of confidence and also had, um, was a woman. Um, I started out as a secretary working um, on Wall Street at 1345 Avenue of the Americas for people who know Manhattan. And um, working for a stockbroker, and this was really my first introduction to Wall Street. I had grown up in California. I had no idea what Wall Street was, but then I just got the bug. It was exciting. This is the the late '80s, early '90s, so this is the era of of liars poker and working girl, and it was just an exciting, exciting time to be on Wall Street. And so I realized, oh, I I want to do this. And so I started taking business courses at night, 
accounting, finance, economics. And then I had the good fortune of having a boss who allowed me to move from being a secretary to an investment banker, which just doesn't happen. There's this divide that's very wide, but I had that opportunity and that put me on this path of moving um, up the ladder from into banking and then eventually equity research. But that that's how it unfolded is that I I saw how exciting it was and, and decided that this is something that I really wanted and started working for it. I mean, I guess sometimes we have to, you know, try on some clothes to see what they feel like. You know, we get into an environment, we might have a perception beforehand, but then we realize what resonates, what doesn't resonate, what excites, what motivates. And then you making that commitment to go and study, go to night school, do those things. And mm. um, again, was that, because you saw an opportunity for financial growth, uh, putting more food on the table, or was it, no, this is something that I'm really excited about on a connection level. Can you remember mm. which was a big driver or was it maybe a combination at the time? It was a, com it was a combination of the two. I think that um, I've always been very, very driven. And, um, and so I had, you know, I, I got really good grades in college. And so now I was in a very different environment and, and being in New York in the late eighties, early nineties, like if you, if you were going after the brass ring at that point in time, you went to wall street. And so I think there was that element of it for me is like, I want that brass ring. I'm going to go after that. I don't know that I could have articulated it quite that way, but it was something, it was exciting and thrilling. And I wanted to do that. I think there was also the element I, I remember having a conversation with a number of people of, okay, I'm going to be working every single day. Why would I make X if 10 X is a possibility? Like, why would I do that? Um, it just didn't make, it didn't make sense to me. And so that I was motivated by that as well. But I think it was really this, this motivation to accomplish something, to achieve something. Um, and, and that was, that was the brass ring at the time. And so I went after that and, and I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I worked long, long hours, but the initial motivation was just, I want to go, there's that really that mountain over there and everybody's climbing it. And I want to climb that mountain too. And do it. Uh, yeah. And, you know, some of the balance between our vision of what we see and when we look back and we evaluate and reflect on our experiences that balances our decision-making where next and what next. Yeah. One of the things that I read uh, was a, a quote, you know, about learning is the oxygen of human growth. Mm -hmm. And has that been something that you've had from a very young age that you've just had this thirst for continual and constant learning? Or is it that, oh, it evolved, you've got an applause and success and progressed through learning and did it again and repeat yeah. that process? Well, how did you come to that um, realization, that viewpoint, that perspective mm -hmm. about growth and learning? Mm. That's a big question. So I, I, you know, it's, it's been very, very gradual how it's all evolved, but I, I would say that I think from a very young age, I remember, I remember someone asked me what my greatest fear was. And I've now reframed this because I know that you don't want to focus on what your fears are. You want to, you know, you don't want to focus on getting out of debt. You want to focus on building wealth. But for a long time, I framed it as I don't want to be stuck. Like I was absolutely terrified of being stuck. And so, um, I think if I flip that, you know, differently in, instead of, you know, I don't want to stagnate, I want to be growing. And so there was something inside of me and has been, I think from a very young age is that I wanted to always continue 
to grow. I wanted to always continue to develop. I wanted to always continue to make progress. And so, so I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you is I was having a conversation, um, actually just a couple of weeks ago with Tom Peters, who he wrote, you know, in search of excellence. And he, he reflected back to me. And I think this is really valuable that sometimes we don't know exactly what we really care about, what our why is until someone says it to us. And he said, it said it this way. He said, Whitney, you want to help people grow big G little G. And I think that's absolutely true. I want to grow myself and I want to help people grow. And so that's been the animating force behind everything that I've done is like, how do I grow? How do I make progress? How do I help other people grow? How do we help other people make progress? It's amazing. I think it's Girdle's law, isn't it? That talks about this challenge of when you're inside the jam jar, you can't see the label. And so requiring that reflection from an outside party to observe Mm -hmm. what's in there. um, because you haven't got that perspective or context is so helpful that in our connected network and society that we should um and just enjoy that enjoy that opportunity that we can do self-reflection but we need sometimes a mirror from an outside to really help us yeah. in that journey yeah and, and, and building on that just a little bit yeah. more ross just to kind of put a, an even finer point on that i remember and i actually wrote about this in smart growth because it, it was it resonated with me so deeply this goes back to simon sinek's work about why he said If you want to know what your why is, you ask people why they spend time with you and, you know, not, 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 oh, because I like you, you're nice or whatever. Like, no, why, what do you get out of spending time with me? Like, why do you want to be around me? And when they start to tell you why they want to be around you, then what they're basically doing is holding up a mirror for you. And that, that you know, that's your why is why people want to be with you is your why. And I think that's really, it's really valuable because we, like you said, and I love the idea of the jam jar because we grow berries here, raspberries and strawberries and blackberries, and we make jam. And so I love that you said inside of the jam jar, you can't see the label. In fact, I did find that out that you, <laughs> you know, love growing and mm-hmm. uh, the strawberries, raspberries, blackberries and making yeah. jam very similar to my wife and I actually, we have lots of veggies and fruit that we grow and um it's one of life's small simple pleasures isn't it yes, where you can really is. grow something and then have it on a plate it's amazing mm-hmm. you you mentioned there about smart growth that's your latest book about you know how to grow people to grow mm-hmm. your company and that interlink so i'm gonna love to dive into that in a little bit but before we do that i want to dive in a little bit to your view on innovation and the way in which you use the word disruption, you know, disruption advisors, disruption innovation, and perhaps can you give us a view of um, what's the difference? Is there a difference between, you know, innovation and growth from what's existing and core, or maybe the explore and transform in the brand new, you know, maybe shiny objects that's there. What's your definitions Mm. and views of those would be really helpful with me. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there are many different types of innovation. And um, as you started to point out is I'm very focused on disruptive innovation and, and disruptive innovation is something that was, it's a term that was coined by Clayton Christensen at Harvard business school. And I had the, the immense privilege or tremendous privilege of working with him for the better part of a decade and how he was defining disruptive innovation is it's a term of art to describe a 
silly little thing that eventually takes over the world. So it looks like a toy. It, it's something that people dis, dismiss. They think it's not anything useful or valuable. So, you know, the telephone uh, disrupted the telegraph, the automobile disrupted the horse and buggy. Cause again, the automobile wasn't what the automobile is today. Um, um, you've seen, um, uh, Netflix disrupt blockbuster. And so there's something that's dismissed by the establishment, if, if you will, but then eventually it, it takes things over. Well, and it, it comes yes. from that model, I guess, of exponentials, you know, it's deceptive before it's disruptive and, that's right. um, follows. I'm not sure if you're, uh, you probably are, but, uh, singularity university and Peter mm-hmm. Diamandis, that's mm-hmm. the Kool-Aid I've been drinking for a decade of that yeah. whole, thing really resonated with me, you know, in terms of innovation at the edge, the, the moonshot innovation, the disruptive mm-hmm. innovation. And so that absolutely resonates as a exciting playground of, of opportunity. And when it comes to perhaps people mm-hmm. um, that we can use these s- stories and you said, ah, you know, uh, Netflix disrupted blockbusters, and we can have these organizational examples of disruption. How does that relate on a personal basis for individuals to maybe disrupt yourself? You know, it's the name of your podcast. What's the thinking there? (laughs) Yeah. So the, the big aha that I had is that I, I had been, um, I was working on wall street as an equity analyst. So I'd been a banker and then I was an equity analyst and picking stocks. And I had come across the innovator's dilemma by, by Clayton and it, I realized, oh, this was an explanatory mechanism for what was happening in the emerging markets where wireless was disrupting wireline. And so that was very useful to me, but the big aha for me was, is that I realized that, that it's not just products and services and companies and countries that disrupt, it's also people and that actually companies don't disrupt, people do. And I had a very personal experience with this because I had gone to a manager and said, Hey, I want to you know, do something different. I've been doing this for eight years. And they basically said, we like you right where you are. And I, I thought, huh, okay. I actually could disrupt myself here. Like I could leave this job that's paying really well. And I could go do something else of less, at least initially less status and, and, and compensation, et cetera. And so I had this mechanism in my mind of, I could disrupt myself. Now, the big difference um, between personal disruption and disruption when it comes to products and services is that you're Netflix and your blockbuster, you're the automobile and you're the horse and buggy because you are disrupting you. You're, you're both the, the, you know, you're both David and Goliath. And so, so when it comes to personal disruption, that's the mechanism by which you make progress. But we need to understand that when we're disrupting ourselves, when we're disrupting our own status quo, that is a much more, it's a much bigger challenge than actually disrupting another product because you're on both sides of that trade. And I'm fascinated on the challenge of the human side of that. So mm-hmm. when we, um, in effect, we might have different drivers. It might be a burning ambition or it might be a burning platform. It mm-hmm. might be internal or external. It might be something that's come along in a market shift that uh, this is happening. Yeah. And then we have this almost, depending on what color glasses you wear, you know, a poetic dance or a frustrating battle between what was and what will become. Mm-hmm. How have you seen that? And maybe some examples in yourself or leaders where we're so wedded in our own identity 
-hmm. to what we do. You know, it's kind of the second question we ask. Oh, so Whitney, so what do you do? You know, yep. once you know someone's name. Mm -hmm. And if we're then saying goodbye and letting go of a past version, uh, the incumbent, for then the new, how do we do that? And how can we help people through that kind of identity shift? Because it yep. can be very personal and very much, you know, the immune system comes up. Tell me some stories about that and some experience that you've had to perhaps help people mm -hmm. who are maybe facing that cliff edge? Yeah, it's such a great question and such an important question. And, and I, I think that anybody who has disrupted themselves, um, either sort of in a, in a big way or a small way uh, ha has dealt with this, this identity shift. And I, I know certainly I did when I made the decision to leave Wall Street and become an entrepreneur. I remember having this experience of it was so thrilling to do this, but now that I had disrupted myself and I was going to be an entrepreneur, I remember very vividly calling people and saying, you know, before it was like, this is Whitney Johnson, Merrill Lynch and, and having my name affixed to that brand and, 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 and my identity attached to that. And now it was just Whitney Johnson. And that was difficult because people, there were people that didn't want to talk to me. Um, and, and I didn't quite know who I was. I had to refashion myself. And so I, I think it's very real. And part of, in terms of how do you get people through this? I think there are two things just to be aware of is that um, when you are um, who you were, you sometimes are going to have this feeling of, if I don't do something different, I will die inside just a little bit. And so it becomes an imperative that you, you have to do it. Um, you know, you have to, and so, you know, there's a cost to it, but the cost of doing what you've been doing becomes too high. Another way that I talk people through it is to use loss aversion theory in your favor. So we know from Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky that you're 2.25 times more motivated by what you lose than by what we gain. When we're thinking about doing something different, we try to focus on, well, what are the really, you know, fantastic things are going to happen if I do something new, which there will be at some point, but sometimes you have to motivate yourself by saying what bad thing will happen to me if I stay here, um, I could get, um, be demotivated. And so I could start to self-sabotage. And so instead of me choosing to do something new, I might get pushed to do something new, which is always more difficult because then you're caught flat or, you know, on, on your back feet. And then the third thing that I recommend, and we can talk about this in just a minute is to recognize that when you do do something new, um, and you move to a new S curve, you will have a loss of identity that is to be expected. And once you know that, um, that you can start to talk yourself through it and just recognize this is part of the process of growth. Oh yes, I am growing right now. I am feeling uncomfortable. I feel like an imposter. I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And this is exactly how I'm supposed to feel, which, which by the way, this is one of the gifts of the pandemic is that the older we get, the more we can insulate ourselves from ever doing anything new. And the pandemic really allowed us to flex that muscle of doing new things of, of, of dealing with this identity shift. And so, so that's what I would say is yes, I have lived this. I, it's very familiar to me. Um, the way you can move yourself through it is, is look at, you know, what are you going to lose if you 
keep doing what you've been doing, knowing a part of you is going to probably die inside, but then also understanding that you're going to feel uncomfortable and awkward. And when you have that feeling, it doesn't mean it was a bad idea to do it. It just means you're doing something new and that will help you navigate that identity shift that, that you mentioned. It's interesting to hear you talk. And I, um, don't know if you've come across, uh, Ben Hardy's work. Oh yeah. Um, so his uh, new book all about, you know, future self and these concepts of, you know, uh, what is fixed, what's not fixed, you know, and we have a lot of work being done around growth mindset, fixed mindset. Well, what about personality or identity and, you know, fixed or growth and our ability to see those transitions and a future self as a different entity. And I'll go and, you know, create that plan. I, I really like your thinking there about what would I lose if I don't make that shift uh, and using that as a, a, another indicator of changing behavior in, in certain ways. In terms of, you know, we've had, as you mentioned, this pandemic that for many has come along and said, you know, pull your socks up, opportunity to reinvent, opportunity to um, you know, rediscover what the next chapter may be for people, as frightening as that has been for, for a number of people. In terms of what you've seen inside organizations and where they've done this really well, where disruption has really worked, what were maybe some of the, the underlying indicators that made that happen? And so you talk about your S curves and sort of the six stages and all of these bases. Just maybe walk through for some people about what are the kind of environmental factors? What are the kind of uh, road signs that would help indicate they're on the right pathway to that kind of growth, to that kind of disruption that is potentially possible? Yeah, so, so one of the things that we look at, um, so we have um, a, an S-curve tool that measures a number of things, which is number one, where are you in your growth? And we use the S-curve of learning to describe that. And we then also look at, what tools do you have in your backpack that will allow you to, to grow? And these are the different growth accelerants, these, these small tools of self-disruption that we've, we've uh, alluded to. But then there's a third element, which is, which is the ecosystem. And um, are the conditions, um, what are the conditions like? Are they going to favor your being able to grow and develop and change and adapt or not? And so the four major factors that we look at are number one, is it conducive and, and conducive in a very basic sense of, do you have the tools that you need to do the work that you're, you're, you're hired to do? Do you have a computer? Do you have, you know, a desk? Do you, and if it's not a desk, do you have a place in your home that you can work, but do you have the tools? Do you have the training that you need to do your job? We also look at um, uh, connectedness. Do you feel connected to the work that you're doing in terms of, does your why sync with the why of the work that you're doing? And I'm not talking about necessarily um, alleviating poverty across the world. It just needs to be a why of wanting to do the work that you want to do. Does it align with the organization? And do you also feel connected to the people that you're doing that work with? So there's a sense of we're doing this together. Um, if you have those you know, that, that connectedness, that's going to give you these conditions where by growth and, and adaptability can happen. The two other that we look at are resilience. 
Um, you know, is there, what happens when things go wrong because things go wrong all the time? How do we talk about it? Um, do we have the network in place that will allow us to sort of catch when we fall and be able to continue to move forward? And then the fourth thing that we look at is nurturing. Um, are there people around you that are invested in your growth? Um, and are you invested in the growth of the people around you? And so you've got the, this idea of conducive connectedness, resilience, and, and nurturing. And if those four pieces are in place, I think of them kind of the weather patterns on the mountain. If those are in place, then you've got the conditions that will allow people to grow. And if, if, if you as an individual and you people on your team are growing, then by definition, your company will grow. And so that's how we, we think about that, that ecosystem and creating those conditions for growth. And I want to ask another question, which is quite a personal challenge for us in our business. And I think it's one that many might be facing is between the growth, innovation, all of those things of extending the core in -hmm. terms of, you know, maximize what's working, all about productivity and efficiency. And then this stuff that I personally get really excited about of, oh, what's coming next? What's the new stuff? What kind of technological advancements can we make to reach more people have greater impact you know democratize things and from an organization basis i can understand those two things those two paradoxes Mm -hmm. uh, working that you need a bit of both of those and this ambidextrous nature to say okay we can utilize core and we can you know explore and transform it at the edges how can we do that on a personal basis, you know, mm-hmm. how can we live that sort of mental flexibility of living in those two environments without going potty? And uh, what would be your advice in that? Pick one and go real deep in it or live in this balance. What's your thought from an individual basis? on? Yeah. That? Yeah. I think it's, for me, it's a both. And, um, so we, we've um, just talking about the S curve of learning briefly, which is a very simple visual model for you to imagine what does growth look like. Whenever you start something new, you're at the launch point and you feel awkward and gangly and unsure and growth feels slow. And, and then you move into the sweet spot that the, the tipping point that Malcolm Gladwell popularized, which, which is this place where growth feels fast and is fast. And it's a steep part of the S. And then you have this mastery place where growth is in fact slow. And so you've got to make a decision. Are you going to stagnate or are you going to jump to a new curve? And so we think about this as a growth cycle and a, a way to think about, about what growth looks like. So to, but to answer your question, then is you say to yourself, well, um, we all have portfolio of S curves. So your, your career is a portfolio of curves. Your job right now is a portfolio of curves. And if you're building on what we know from project management research, and we know from neuroscience is that you can really only hold, you know, three, maybe four ideas, manage three or four projects at a time. If you think about a portfolio of S curves, what you want to do is say, okay, I probably want to have two S curves where I'm in the sweet spot. So that's the core. I'm just, you know, doing, I'm focused and I'm moving fast and things are working. And then you probably want to have one where it's just so easy. And so, so just part of essentially of what you do and you, you could kind of do it in your sleep, but that anchors everything else. And then you want to have one place that you're doing something new. And so you basically, if you've got four S curves, you've got two where you're in the sweet spot and things are humming. You've got one where you really know what you're doing. It's anchoring everything else. And you do want to have one where you're doing new things. And I think certainly that's true for a company and your portfolio projects. 
But I also think it's true for us in individuals. And I would even argue that it's true for us in any given day. You want to have most of your day where you're doing stuff that you feel like it's humming, but you want to be doing something. It's a little bit new, a little bit fresh every single day, because that's, that's where the learning is taking place. That's where you're advancing yourself as a human being. And so if we design this utopian sort of ideal of we've got that four-way split and we're getting energized from the sweet spot that gives us the resources and capacity to take on the, you know, the stuff that's at stretch. Mm -hmm. And we've got the rejuvenation part in the, do it in the, in the sleep. I think one of the realities that many are living right now is just this absolute overwhelm, overwhelm of maybe way more than four. We've got high stress, high burnout, high overwhelm of so many things are changing. What used to be a sweet spot just yesterday has shifted. What right. used to be a stretch has now just become a, um, a massive stretch in context to themselves. Mm-hmm. And so in this accelerated world of where every step you're going onto a treadmill at level 12, and the chances are you're going to hit your face. What do you do in that sort of situation? Do you, are you recognizing that same speed of everything or is the way in which we can find um, comfort in that uncomfortable space, the, the sort of ability to be at peace when everything seems um, unrecognizable? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I'm going to actually say it's a both and because um, part of what we're doing is you're, you're going fast, right? When you're in the sweet spot of the curve and you want to be able to go fast. And in order to do that, you need to focus just like if you're a race car going around a track, you have to focus so you don't derail. So there is that element of it. But the other piece of this, I think is really, really important is this idea of you actually have to slow down. Um, there's this wonderful um, book by Tiffany Schlein. She wrote a book called 24 six. And when she, she argues for a technology Shabbat. So you have one day a week where you're not working, but she, in that book or not, not, not only not working, but unplugged from all your devices. So that's, that's probably an extreme for most people. But in that book, she talks about all of the research that says is that when you're willing to unplug, when you're willing to take a break, your productivity actually increases. And so um, she, there's this one quote in particular that I love that she talks about, what if we thought of rest as a technology? So the promise of technology is that it's going to allow us to be more, you know, to move faster, to be more efficient. Um, we know that resting, just like you sleep so that you can have energy, if you're willing to take a break, if you're willing to rest, then you're going to be more productive. And so, so the counterintuitive answer to this is yes, you need to focus when you're going fast, but I know for myself personally, I do like, I take every Sunday off. I don't work. I I do church. I do family. I do different things and that regenerates me. And so whatever your Sabbath looks like your technology Shabbat, um, during the day, are you giving yourself breathing space? Are you stepping back so that you can slingshot forward? And so, so my answer is, is that we need to have the discipline. And I really do think the answer is the discipline to stop working, the discipline to rest, the discipline to have a habit and the discipline to say to everybody that we work with on our team, you need to take a break. You need to go on vacation. I'm requiring you to go on vacation, trusting, and it does require trust. That's why I say discipline and trust that if you will do those things, you will be more productive on the other side. 
it's that I love that idea of this deliberate practice at resting, mm. you know, to be really intentional about it. I remember um, spending some time with Ariana Huffington and she was talking about this um, challenge of technology and she was using this story. It was quite an elaborate one, but I, I loved it of this, you know, creating of an actual physical bed for your phone, saying goodnight to it, tucking it in, you know, and uh, putting it out the way. And this just unplugging from mm. the noise, unplugging from all of the stimulation is tough. It's hard, but it takes learning to do it because learning to rest when we were children is different to what learning to rest is now. And as we become adults and as the mountain changes and the environment changes, we have to relearn and maybe unlearn some old habits of what rest really looks like. And another tie up was um, we had uh, Alexa from the Resilience Institute um, mm. recently do a keynote. And one of the pieces that really struck home with me of indicator of people's level of resilience was their ability to relax. Mm. So how much have we worked on our ability to actually relax? And I said to my wife, because she's somebody who's always on the go, she finds it very hard to relax. And I think that is a practice in an under, under promoted skill. Yeah, underutilized or underrealized that we mm. should be training ourselves to relax, uh, giving people space on how to relax well. And I think it's more than just the, the modern old let's do some mindfulness work on those things. I think there's a much bigger unpacking on what does it take for you to get into coherence? What does it take for you to actually drop the shoulders, to be in a state of space, a, a state of I, neutral? I, I completely agree. Um, I, I think, you know, the, this deliberately being able to rest and relax is its own S curve. Like, you have your, okay, I can go S curve, but can I rest S curve? And it's part of the reason why I like my whoop um, is that it, it measures your heart rate variability, which is basically your idea, your ability to go from cortisol and whoop to resting. And, you know, I've been tracking that for about a year and it's very helpful because I think it's not just about, did you sleep? It's about, are you able to recover from stress? And, and if you do that, that's going to give you that resilience, but, and, and rest and talking about the word rest, not just sleeping, but rest writ large. Can you breathe? Can you take a moment? Can you recalibrate? It's, it's a, like you said, um, and, uh, a, a skill that many of us do not have, but I, I think that the pandemic helped with that as well of uh, helping us be aware that we needed it and helping us start to have the tools to figure out how to be good at it. So I want to geek out a bit here on HRV. So on your uh, heart rate variability, have you got any yeah. tips, any hacks of where if you you've been tracking it for a year, because I've, uh, I've been tracking it for four years via uh -huh. my uh, aura ring, very yep. similar to the whoop. Yep. Uh -huh. And uh, I'm still trying to work out how can I improve that HRV uh, rate. So have you noticed anything that is indicating when it uh, peaks, what sort of scores yeah. you get in? Uh, I find that fascinating. Yeah. So, so nothing, nothing super scientific at this point, but, but I have noticed that I, when I am able to 
focus on being present. So, um, if I'm able to, um, as the day, as I go throughout the day to not focus on what do I need to get done or perseverate about something that didn't go the way I wanted it to, but just to be present, to breathe, to focus on the conversation that we're having, the more I can train myself to be in the moment, um, that allows me to be calmer. The more I can have breaks between calls so that I have time to just sort of recuperate and take a walk. Um, so I'm not kind of in this stress mode, the more breathing space I give myself and the more I practice being present. Um, it seems that that does shift my heart rate variability so that it goes up, which is what you want. You want it to be higher, not lower. We think we want it to be lower, but we actually want it to be higher. Those are some, some hypotheses I have is what is, what is contributing it to being, um, higher, which is good, <laughs> really good. That, I guess for people, you know, that realization, when we have that, when we have good heart rate variability, it's our ability to go, as you said, from being flooded by stress hormones, whether that's through physical or mental, uh, activity to then being able to get into a state of flow, um, mm. on a, you know, our nervous system recovery rate. I found that uh, temperature is affecting it. So the temperature of oh. my room when I sleep. Uh, so if I've had the things that you talked about of, you know, space in the day, a sort of combination of doing some physical exercise a bit more mm. than my daily dog walk. Um, and then if I have a, a cooler night, I'm mm. seeing an increase in my HRV. Uh, oh, interesting. Video, okay. I'm going to have to, I'm going to play with that because um, of like, of having the room be cooler. That's yeah. interesting. Uh, so, I mean, I've uh, just for those, cause I know a few of our listeners are into it. I've not shared before, but um, it does, uh, it is affected by age, by all sorts of other factors. Mm -hmm. Your general, is it sign of general health and things like that? But I was averaging it in and around 40 to 50 mm -hmm. and I've got it tracking up to like an average overnight in the eighties now. Um, and so, wow. you know, a max That's of 128 or a high of 82 of, of HRVs. And for me that I feel different, I feel different in my ability to take on challenges, my ability to take on when something I expected to happen doesn't happen. And mm -hmm. I can just cope with it, feel at more peace. I feel more, um, capable in those situations. And I, whether it's a placebo effect or what, but I see those uh, numbers. It doesn't, and it doesn't matter if I'm, uh, you know, in that state. And I think as a leader, it's so important in how we show up and our wake mm -hmm. of whether we are, you know, wired um, in the right way or not, that has this ripple effect out to how people around you then feel, you know, can you feel at peace when the storm is on? Yep. Um, and uh, as we come uh, to sort of the, the piece, because I, I find every uh, piece you just get going and then it's like, oh, yeah, podcast is supposed to finish within the hour, you know, 45 minutes and you're just getting going. Uh, I, I want to I'm sure you might have a, a little element just on that, but the. The act of for you transitioning and writing books, so you've done, is it four books now mm -hmm. uh, with either Routledge or Harvard Business Review and how has that affected just that process of communicating an idea uh, mm -hmm. as it affected your own career path and your own 
uh, business and organization and the way you work by using the writing and creation of books to help you sort of maybe nest a piece. I'm really interested in that because I speak to a lot of people and I, I feel now there's such this awakening of the power of books of that it's more accessible more people are doing it and mm -hmm. I'm just interested at your level how it's affected your career and how maybe other leaders can use it as a lever for reflection for their own growth and their yeah. own development it's such a great question um and I think you you pointed out something very important which is um you know you write a book because you feel like you have something to say, but you also write it because you want to find out what you have to say. And, and there is an element of, if you go through the process of writing a book, you will grow and you will develop, even if no one ever reads the book. And I think that that's, I mean, not to say that that's going to happen, but there is a, there is something very, um, powerful about, saying what you think and trying to figure out a way to give who you are voice. I think it's a really powerful, powerful exercise. So there, there's that element of it. Um, in terms of, from a business perspective, I think there are a few things that happen. Number one is that when you have to put your ideas down on paper, it requires you to codify what you think in a way that you don't even begin to when you're just speaking. I mean, it just, there's a rigor that's involved that is um, very, very valuable in figuring out here's what I actually think. Here's how I'm, excuse me. Here's how I, uh, you know, here, here's what I think. Um, here's my point of view. Um, so I think that is very valuable for you as you're trying to, if you want to be, you know, build a business around your ideas, having them in writing, codifying them is, is actually very important. The other piece of it that is very important is that there is some element of legitimacy. Um, if someone doesn't have a book um, and is trying to build a business, it's it's harder to do because people don't think you're as legitimate. I mean, it's almost like a business card at this point. And so you don't have to, um, but I do think it does make a difference as you're trying to um, build out a business. If you can say, here's my body of work, here's what I think, here's how you can engage with this. Here's you can get to know me and who I am and how I think about the world, then they can make a decision. Okay. Yes. I do want to work with you. And yes, you are, you've done the work to say that you're serious about this. Um, those are all important elements. Um, it's, you don't write books to make money. There are a few people, but that's a, you know, a very, very small, small percentage of people. You write a book because you have something to say. You write a book because it codifies your idea. You write a book because you believe um, because it becomes a calling card for you. And you write a book because the, the, the great creative expression that comes when you put your thoughts and who you are and you find your voice down on, on paper, there's something really powerful and, and satisfying around that when you feel like you've done your best work. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's, you know, the balance of all artists, you know, that all works are just abandoned, they're never finished. Mm. Um, you know, and maybe coming from a jazz background mm. and a music background, that expression mm. to be able to search um, and balance unknown flow with then a perfection of, okay, no, something has to be crystallized at some yep. point. Mm -hmm. um, and I think our lives are a bit like that. 
is this series of this dance between moments of jazz and moments of crystallization mm -hmm. um, and that we can then layer each as you beautifully put it in this you know visual that I've got of these nested s curves and multiple s curves that go on in our lives whether that's many in our workplace many in our you know um family and home in all areas of our lives mm -hmm. as we grow got two final things before we wrap up Whitney and one of them is uh can you remember maybe the most impactful moment of your time with Clayton so Clayton Christians and mm -hmm. the time with him is there one thing that sticks in your mind that maybe was really pivotal in your view of the world your view of yourself uh, or your career and then I've got my final question yeah. after that. yeah yeah I think when I when I think about um Clayton I I think the thing that's so there's the, there's the theory itself of disruption, which has obviously informed everything that I do. Um, but apart from the theory itself, the thing that really influenced me was that there, there was no separation of the secular and the spiritual. So you would see him, who he was at church was the same person that he was at work and who he was at work. You know, he brought his, his work and his, all of his intellectual prowess into his, his spiritual life. And he brought his, his secular life, um, or excuse me, his spiritual life into his secular life, into his work. And that has really, really influenced me and, and how I do my work and, and making sure that I bring all of myself, who I am, what I believe, how I think about the world, my perspective to the work that I'm doing. Um, and it was just a really great example for me because a lot of people try to compartmentalize their lives. And, you know, there's this part of my life and there's this part of life. No, he didn't do that. He brought both pieces to bear, even when there was some cost to him to do it, because people don't always talk about their faith, but he did. And I, that was incredible, incredible to me powerful thing to be unapologetically ourselves mm -hmm. in each environment of our life mm -hmm. um, and I think the one of life's beautiful pieces is to do that um, and at the same time have this paradox of knowing the context of each of those to what you might dial up or down slightly so it's still yeah. you but mm -hmm. you have a intelligence to be able to dial where um, where necessary in, in those things mm -hmm. of what, what you bring mm -hmm. forward. And I, well said. I, I like that thought and I've embraced that more as well, Whitney, myself, mm -hmm. you know, a, a couple of times when we've done things, summits work and there's bits where I, things that is me that I love and being able to be that same person in a work context has brought incredible joy to me. Mm -hmm. um, and in, with the right audience has brought incredible value for them um, mm -hmm. of those things. So uh, my last question for you, Whitney, and it almost was answered in some of your early uh, commentary, um, but maybe there's something else. And my question is around unlearning curiosity and firsts. And what it is, is when was the last time you did something for the first time? And what was it? Hmm. Um, uh, just last week, actually. So last week I, I was on vacation 
And I made the decision. So I, I played a little bit of tennis, hit tennis balls when I was younger and decided that I wanted to come back to it. And so last week I went to a tennis camp for an entire week. How cool. Love that. Was- Especially as it's Wimbledon week here in the UK. So it's been on the uh, our telly every day watching yeah. uh, Wimbledon yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Real pleasure. Thank you for sharing some of your story and fascinating insights. And if people want to get in touch with you, Whitney, what's the best way if they want to learn more about some of your amazing books, whether that's Smart Growth, Disrupt Yourself, mm. Build an A-Team, or Dare to Dare Dream Do, Yeah. how are they best getting in touch with you, Whitney? Yeah, I, I think um, depending on what you're trying to, to accomplish, um, obviously you can buy any of the books um, wherever books are sold. Um, if you're interested in podcasts, which you probably are, cause you're listening to Ross's podcast, you can listen to my podcast is, is disrupt yourself with Whitney Johnson. So that's, that's an, that's an option. Um, and I would actually recommend that you go listen to episode 80, which gives you an overview of these ideas. And then the third thing is, is if you want to connect around our tool that we use to figure out where you are on the S curve, you can always just reach out to me directly at WJ at Whitney Love it. I love it. And this opportunity from an individual engaging because they want to disrupt themselves through to teams that want to get better performance in how they drive innovation or uh, coaches and consultants that might want to be certified and work alongside you in some of these methodologies and principles. I think it's amazing work that you do and it aligns well with what our why and mission is, is to ensure no one's left behind in this fastest period of change. So thank you for your time, Whitney. Really enjoyed it. And I look forward to future conversations. Thank you for having me, Ross. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams and organizations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast directory and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.